0: Now, I am excited. We, we are in this series. The series continues. It's on Joshua, and we've said many things in this series. We've had one quote that has sort of driven us as we've made our way throughout. It's from a philosopher named Aristotle. He said this, we make war that we may live in peace. And by that, he means that there are some times in which the best route to go is to wage war in, order, in the short term in order that there may be long-term peace. The Book of Joshua is a divine call to courage by seeing God's faithfulness as He grows His kingdom through His people. We gave a simple definition that came from a man named Randy Pope as to what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is the reign of Christ in, uh, I'm sorry. The kingdom of God is the reign of Christ the King in the lives of his kingdom people, which grows extensively, that is, broader, and intensively, that is, deeper. More numbers of people come to bow the knee of submission to King Jesus, as well as more and more areas of my own personal life getting surrendered over to him. Maybe I'm saying, yes, Lord, more often. Week number one, courage from above leads to faith. Week two, God's people need... More leaders worth following. Week number three, faith comes by hearing. Week number four, we must ask God, are we on your side? And then last week, Todd faithfully taught us, and I kept honing in on this one phrase, the weapon of our faith is worship. For those of you who are paying attention to the outline that we've drawn, we're in that third section, which is still taking the land, which goes from chapters 6 through 12. Now for today, whether someone would consider themselves to be religious or not, I think that we all would agree that this statement is generally speaking true. We all want to sin in the dark. I did not know. We all want to sin in the dark, meaning that we would prefer that the choices that we make, that we know are sinful, that are self-oriented, that might be damage to someone else, whether it's through self-preservation, whatever. Well, we all want those decisions to, to remain unseen. Now, that's normal. In fact, I would say I have a greater level of concern for someone who wants to sin in the light with no shame, with no concern for what it feels. In other words, in order to shove something into the face of everyone else says deal with it, I think is even more self-absorbed. We all want to sin in the dark. When there are things that happen, when there is a defeat that happens in our lives, we would prefer that people not know that, wouldn't we? I am a large North Carolina basketball fan. And after the Duke game earlier this year, I rewatched the game immediately twice. I want to go back and watch that victory again. There's no group of people that I enjoy disliking more than the Duke Blue Devils. It's in their name for crying out loud, the Blue Devils. God is not on their side. I went back and watched that game twice without even blinking. There was another game Later, let North Carolina play it against some other opponent. I don't know. I recorded it. I have yet to watch it because they lost. (laughs) I have a whole slew of games that I've recorded over the years that I have never watched because I did not want to watch this go and lose. Now, when I was a coach, obviously, you want to watch all the game film. You want to learn. You want to improve, et cetera. But I'm just referring to as a fan, watching from a distance. Wouldn't we all love to take our actions, our sinful choices, our defeats in life? wouldn't we like to some put them away where they were never seen again? How great would it be if they were actually separated as far as the east is, from the West? We all sin in the dark. We all want it to remain in the dark. Here's the thing, though: God redeems in the light. See, we like our failures to go unnoticed, unseen, untalked about, forgotten, overlooked. God, however, is in this business of taking the sinful actions of individuals. Bringing them to the light, not so that that individual might be forever condemned, actually for their good, because he's going to bring about a redemption. That redemption is going to come, not because that person finally learned their lesson and through hard work and diligence and discipline, they finally got over the hump and they overcame everything. God wants to bring redemption in the light because he is the one who gets the credit for the redemption. In order for redemption to be brought into the light, guess what has to come to the light? Sin. Now, here's my question for each of us this morning. How much sin are you exposing intentionally, willfully? You've heard me say this before, but it would be a bad idea if we were just to take turns and let everyone come up here on stage. And if you would take 10 minutes to give us your deepest, darkest sins you've ever committed, that would be a bad idea. I had a mentor that once said this, David, don't stand up in front and just bleed on the congregation. That's not helpful. What is helpful, though, is to bring my sin into the light to the appropriate people in the appropriate way at the appropriate time. Now, there's no way you will ever confess all of your sin to any human being. Nor will you ever actually confess all of your sin to God. And the reason is because there's so much sin in you and me that we are unaware of. We'll never confess everything that we have to confess. So that's not what the scriptures asking us to do. The scriptures are asking us to take that which is hidden in the dark, naturally, understandably, we all get it why it's there, and to bring it into the light for the purpose of redemption. Many of you know my story. It was a story of being defeated over and over and over again by the power of alcohol. Through choices that I made, I was not a victim. It wasn't because I experienced some horrific childhood. I had a great childhood. I just liked the way that alcohol made me feel the decisions that I made when I was under the influence. I got addicted to it on on my own, and and I could not get out of it. And then the Lord did a unique work. Um, uh, He overpowered it, and to this day, there's not a month that goes by that I don't share that story with someone and I'm helping them find sobriety. My failures are what God has used most often for ministry. We sin in the dark. God redeems in the light. If you are physically able, would you stand... We're going to skip around as we have the last couple of weeks. We've got all of chapter 7 and chapter 8 to cover. We're going to read as much as we possibly can because in many ways the reading of God's Word might be the most important thing that we do on a Sunday morning. But we'll skip around and I'll let you know for those of you following along in your own Bibles, but beginning in chapter uh, chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerath, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel. And he said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up there. But let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Cherubim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people, that is God's people, melted and became as water. Go down to verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 500 shekels, then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Chapter 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear, do not be dismayed, take all the fighting men with you, and arise, go up to I. See, I have given into your hand the king of I and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush behind the city, behind it. Verse 18, then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city and the men and the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it and they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven and they had no power to flee this way or that for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai and others came out of the city against them so that they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped. But they took the king of Ai alive and brought him near to Joshua. Closing up with verse 30. And at that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on the burnt offerings to the Lord, and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. You may be seated. Now, if you think that what we just read took some time, Think about how long it took for Joshua to read all that at the end. Standing up and hearing the entirety that was read before them. And we're going to take this section, I'm sorry, this, uh, this passage uh, here, chapter 7 and 8, and we're going to divide it up this way. The first nine verses talk about the defeat at I, meaning God's people were defeated at I. Now, you have this incredible battle at Jericho, and so you have this victory that takes place. The people do things God's way and in God's timing. God said, wait, 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 now go. And while you're going, here was the military strategy. Keep in mind the military strategy that God gave Joshua all the way at the beginning of the book. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything that is written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. So the the leadership challenge from God to, to Joshua is this. Meditate on this book of the law. Think about what it is that I'm saying. Think about who it is that I am, why I'm asking. And then, to the best of your ability, put it into practice. Here, in Jericho, the military strategy was go and march and let the worshipers go first. Worshipers before warriors, let them sing. And then when the time comes, you're going to give this shout. It's a great, great word. Do you know that the same word that's used for shout was the one that was a shout for worship as well as the shout in war? Same word. Same word that would show up later on in the Psalms. Shout to the Lord, all the earth. Worshippers before warriors, and then God was going to, by his power, do something in that day that nobody could reasonably take credit for. That was how victory was won in chapter six. Do you also remember what happened in chapter six? You remember that prostitute named Harlot? No, it's named Harlot, named uh, Rahab. Remember what happened to her? She was spared because of the faith that she had placed in God. She had heard who God was, so that we know this is the God of the universe. And so I'm on his side now. And so they said, Hey, just do this, that, and the other, and then we'll come and get you. And so that she did. She did this, that, and the other, and then they came and got her when the time was to get her. Do you know what the scripture says about her? It says that she was with the people of Israel to this day. So, the time that the book was written, she was still with them. She married this guy named Salmon. And they had some children who had some children. And David is in the line of Rahab. And I find this so compelling that the the way that David conceived one of his children was actually through sin. I'm not celebrating that. I'm not saying that was a good thing. I'm saying David did something here that was, um, he took another man's wife And she was pregnant as a result. Now, that child ended up dying. But the child that came after that was a child named Solomon. And Solomon and David are in the line of a harlot. See, what we like to do in the dark, God brings into the light so that he can bring about redemption. How many of you, if you were starting a religion, say, I got a great way to get this thing going? One of the greatest kings that the nation will ever have. I got, a, I got a great way to talk about who his mother was. On up the line. I want you to notice how many times the scriptures goes out of its way to point out the flaws of the people who follow Jehovah. I wonder if we should do the same. What happens in this is that now the people, after this great victory in Jericho, are making their way out. And so Joshua sends out the spies in the same way, and here's what the spies do when they come back. It's Joshua, we got it. Tiny group of people. I mean, we know God's on our side because buildings fall down. Walls fall down when we just start hollering. And so we really don't need to do a whole lot because this group of people, you know what they were saying? We got this. And when we get into a mindset that says we got this at the expense of saying God has got this, therefore we can move forward courageously, rather when we forget God, put him in the side say lord we're going to do this for you. This is when we get in trouble. When we got this, we typically get something bad. And so we got this is what they were saying. And so they make their way up there trying to do things in their way. And it says that they get their tails handed to them. Now, we'll try to bring a little bit more application at the end of this, but I can't resist it even at this moment. There's a defeat that takes place at I. 36 good men lose their lives. In your spiritual pilgrimage, remember a kingdom deeper and broader, talk about the deeper for just a second, in your own spiritual pilgrimage, there will be defeats. You will have setbacks. I am not saying that I am a defeatist. I am saying you are going to sin. You are going to blow it. And the reason I know that is because unless Jesus has already come back and we missed it, we have not yet been glorified. And so as long as we're on this earth, there's still going to be sin that gets you from time to time. Yes, we ought to be progressing. Yes, we ought to be becoming more and more and more like Jesus as we surrender the controls of our life. I'm not saying that we just give in and sin because we know it's going to happen. I'm saying it's going to happen. There's going to be defeats in your life. And so we can either live as a defeated people or we can live as those who understand and recognize that Christ has already won the ultimate war. The battles we still have to fight now. Don't get so consumed with your own sin that you can't see your Savior. So here's some personalities here this morning, some of you watching all that some personalities here that you cannot stop thinking about your own sin. and you feel as though you are the worst Christian that has ever existed. You look around this room and you see others that seem to be living this Christian faith out better. They seem to be praying better. They seem to be trusting more. They seem to have more of an impact in ministry. You look around and say, God, am am I the non-matching member here? Am am I the one with the huge circle around? Am I the only one that sins to this degree? And I will tell you, no, you're not. You probably are just more aware of your sin. You're going to have... Defeats in your pilgrimage. I learned in AA that relapse was a part of recovery. So don't don't sit so deeply in your sin that you miss the sight of your Savior. Guess what? God's kingdom, meaning broader, us as a church, the church, big C, there will be losses that we will have in seeing the values of the kingdom of God advance throughout the world as well. And this is what excites me right now. In the day and age in which we live in, if you were to talk about the average view of the person in our particular country, I can't speak on behalf of other countries, I don't live there. In our particular country, if you were to look at the values of the people right now, they would not closely resemble the values of the kingdom of God. Anyone want to disagree with that? The average person. not, not What I'm so excited about is God has said, hey, my church, I'm going to build you, and I'm going to build you to such a degree that the gates of hell are not going to prevent you from going and marching and moving forward. And my goal has always been that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The glory of God is best understood when more and more people recognize God for who he is, rest in who he is. When he is seen and understood rightfully as he is, that's when the glory of God is expanded. God has said, my church, go forward. I I get excited about this. The darker that it looks out there, the more I think, hot diggity. Think about the impact that we're about to have. If the church looks around and says, the darkness is so great, we've got to just retreat and come back, circle the wagons. Man, let's just try to create our own subculture here. We are going to live as the defeatists. But if we say, no, Lord's given me a mission, we're going to experience defeats in that. In the early 1970s, there was a defeat where the taking of a human life inside the womb of a mother was declared as legal. It was a defeat. But some ladies began to pray and some others began to meet. Lawyers began to argue. Judges were appointed. Voters voted. And we're moving in a trend today that I really, truly believe this with every fiber of my being, that when my grandchildren reach my age, there will be a time in America we'll say, can you believe that we did that back in that day and age? The kingdom of God can move forward, don't don't think that the defeat at I don't think that this was the end of the story. In verses 10 through 26, we find out the specific reason why there was a defeat at I. Yes, the people were overconfident. I think that certainly played um, into it. The scriptures tell us in here, though, in verses 10 through 26, that there was a sin of a particular individual, and that man 's name was Achan. We do not know if Achan was a soldier or whether he was another person. We just know this. Achan at some point went into Jericho. He saw. It looked good. He took. His first mistake in there had to be choosing to stare for an inordinate amount of time, choosing to look at something that was not supposed to be his. It was actually supposed to be devoted to. To the Lord in Joshua six verse eighteen to nineteen, the Lord said this: But you keep yourselves from things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take away of the devoted things and make them uh, make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord; they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. This is what he was telling them um, what they were to do. And, and and Achan knows this, but he sees. It looks really good, and so he takes. Sound familiar? There is no new strategy from the evil one. Eve saw, and the fruit looked good, and she took. David was walking on his roof at the time in which kings should normally be out to battle. He looked down, he saw, and she looked good, and he took. We could do this with any story that you want. We see it looks good and we take. Here's the problem. God had not given permission to take. Even though the thing itself might have been good in and of itself, the timing was wrong. God had not given permission to take it. In other words, they started acting in a way that they wanted to act in their timing rather than doing it God's way in God's time. When I was a youth pastor, easily, I mean easily, the thing that I would counsel students on the most was uh, they would ask this question, how far is too far? It's always a question. And I had such joy being able to explain to them, why do you think God made the command the way that he made it? Why do you think that he said, nope, wait until marriage, and then it's just one man and it's one woman united in a covenant relationship until death do us part. Why do you think God did it that way? Do you think it's because God is embarrassed of something that he created? Meaning physically, he he thought, well, I don't want anybody else to, no, it's good. He did it that way because it points us to something that is bigger. We can have all of the blessings and the benefits of being in a relationship with God, all of the good that comes with that relationship, but we first must say no to every other God We must worship not anything else and enter into an exclusive relationship with Jehovah God through a covenant relationship. And once that is done, all that God is and all that we are can be brought together. Now, I'm not saying that we're some other infused or murdered. I'm saying that all of the blessings that come with being in a relationship with God come as a result of saying no to every other God. That's why God gave us that picture here on earth. So, Easily the the lead domino, as one other theologian put it, in the life of a believer when it comes to submitting areas of your life over to the Lordship of Christ, easily the domino before we get married is our dating and sex life. Are we going to do it God's way? And in God's time? Or am I going to see and take? Timing makes all the difference in the world. Do you realize that if Achan would have just waited a few more days, you could have taken it. When you are married, I think easily the lead domino when it comes to surrendering the areas of the door. not the only area, but the lead domino forces our finances. Are our finances truly going to be God's? Or are they going to be ours? Are we going to do it God's way? Or are we going to do it ours? If we do it ours, we're taking a huge risk. If we do it God's way, there's tremendous opportunity and blessing that awaits. Now, the sin that happens had to be dealt with. And God chooses to execute Achan and his entire family. Joshua carries out the execution. Joshua carries out the judgment of God. God. Now here's the question. Why does God deal so harshly with this particular sin when there are other sins that he doesn't seem to deal uh, quite as harshly as? And I have the perfect answer for you. I don't know. I am not God. What I do know is this. For us, it is offensive when we start talking about death as a result of sin. And that is because we don't have the same view of sin that God does. We want it to be an inconvenience that's sort of hidden in the dark, overlooked, passed by. God hates it. But I want you to hear this. Because I know many of us struggle with the fact that his entire family, those that may or may not have had anything to do with this particular sin, also received this this judgment. I promise you, if you go to the Middle East today, they have no problem with this right? whatsoever. It's a, a cultural thing. But I will tell you, we cannot have it both ways. Either the sin of one can cause devastation for others um, or everyone can, can, can pay on their own what it is that's coming to them. We can have it that way or we can have it this way. The righteousness of one man can be sufficient for all. If you want to say, I'm going to take my chances, Lord. I, I want you to deal with me based solely upon what it is that, that I have done. Um, I, I, th- great. Then that means that Jesus' death, life, and resurrection can't be sufficient for you because you want it done on your own. Achan pays a price. And let us not miss this. Yes, sin affects everyone. Absolutely, sin affects everyone. My children, it affects my my bride, it affects my neighbors, it affects my church. Sin absolutely has an effect. But God. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 29, give us the defeat of I. There was the defeat at I in the first part of this. Now there is the defeat of I. Because the story wasn't done. After there is repentance that is done, the people come back to the Lord and Joshua begs on behalf. Before when Joshua was praying, saying, why in the world have we been defeated, Lord? And then I want you to, to, to notice this. Remember, the, the, the driving motive of his heart was, God, if we're going to be defeated over here, if you're going to continue to lead us into to defeat, then how is the entirety of the world going to know who you are? That was what was driving him in this. And so now Joshua goes back and says, Lord, how do you want us to go about this particular uh, battle? And so they turn to the Lord, and instead of saying, we got this, they now say, God, you have to have this. And God says, go forward. I'm going to put them into your hands. And so God gives them the battle plan. They follow it out um, as it is uh, given And there is tremendous victory that takes place. I wonder what it would look like in our lives if we were to focus more on the possibilities of the influence of victory than honing in on our particular defeats. What has God done in your life? What has he overcome did you used to have an anger problem, and you've actually seen progress in that? I'm not saying perfection. I'm saying progress. I cheated on virtually every test in middle school because I was so lazy, I did not want to actually study. And I went to a small private school that actually required you to study. I'm saying nothing about public schools. Public schools are great. Please don't hear me. We'll edit that out. Good grief. I went to a school that was particularly tough. I got to the end of elementary school, I mean, uh, middle school. I said, you know, I just, I just don't want to cheat anymore. It's not worth it. So I stopped cheating. And I started failing. <laughs> then I realized I actually had to put some form of effort into studying, get prepared um, in the process. Have you... Had a problem with cheating and the Lord has done a unique work in your life? What has God done in your life? I wonder what it would look like if you were to do, as Paul talks about, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the Lord. I'm going to boast about what the Lord has done in my life. Glance at your sin. but Set your gaze on Christ. In verses 30 through 35, He talks about the covenant. And it's this beautiful picture of people standing on either side of the ark. They're facing particular mountains. And then there's this reading of the scriptures, the law of Moses. And there is the the curses that come with disobedience. And there are the blessings that come with obedience. And they're read aloud to the people once again. And once again, they're renewing the covenant saying, God, we are yours. They're throwing their hands up there and say, God, do something with us. And the rest of the book is about the victory that takes place as the kingdom of God advances forward. The rest of the book is about God fulfilling his promise through his people that more and more of the world would hear about the good news of Jehovah. Chapter 7 is about the curse of sin. Chapter 8 is about the blessing of obedience. In chapter 7, they lost. In chapter 8, they won. In chapter 7, they thought, we got this. In chapter 8, they believed, God's got this. In chapter 7, they were defeated. In chapter 8, they were victorious. In chapter 7, the lack of trust in God impacted other people for their harm. In chapter 8, the abundance of trust in God impacted people for their good. Let me ask you, do you want to live in chapter 7 or do you want to live in chapter 8? And I want to encourage you. I want to beg you. I want to plead with you. Don't ever get out of the habit at glancing at your sin. It keeps you humble. It reminds you that you need Jesus today, not just when you came to him originally in your life. Don't ever stop glancing at your sin, but please can we develop the habit of setting our gaze on the person of Christ Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, he is the one who has the power to change people. He is the one who restores marriages. He is the one who brings the hearts of the children back to the fathers. He is the one who brings businesses back to life. He is the one that restores parties together again. He is the one who overcomes alcohol and drug addiction. Jesus is the one who overcomes everything that has to do with sin. So set your gaze on Jesus while only glancing at your sin. Close with this. In the NIV, which is God's favorite version of the scriptures. Romans chapter 5. And in chapter 5, it starts out in there and it says, Man, yeah, for some good people, someone might consider dying, but nobody's going to die for the ungodly, the unrighteous. And then Paul says, but this is exactly what Jesus does, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to what he says in verses 18 to 19. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. My friends, I'm here to tell you the possibilities are almost endless as what it is that we could be if we choose to live as Joshua 8 Christians rather than Joshua 7 Christians. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, woe is me. Paul says, who's going to rescue me? The thing I don't want to do, in in chapter 8, though, he comes along and says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, as a people, have an opportunity to advance the kingdom of God by pointing people to Jesus. I pray that we would be that kind of people.